Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Homage to the blessed, noble and perfectly enlightened one Adanto suche doye holakudi sanmeo sanputoshe. Namo sadanto suche doye holakudi sanmeo sanputoshe. Ushan shen shen we nyafa. Bai chen wan chen the unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I have come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I vow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Uh, Phil, would you knock that down just a track, just a little bit off the top? It's kind of got an edge there. Also, anybody would like to turn on the balcony lights? The switch is right there. And you can have some light up here. Okay, welcome to our Sutra Lecture, everybody. This is uh, tonight. It is now July 23rd, Saturday night here in Berkeley, California. And uh, I've been traveling for... Uh, nearly two months, and it's great to be back. We're going to be looking into the Avatamsaka Sutra, the Ten Grounds chapter, which is right here. And uh, we're going to be chanting the name of the sutra, which is also right there. The uh, Chinese characters are on the bottom two lines, and please uh, give it a try, try the romanization. We're going to chant those syllables seven times.
counting one, two, three, four, five, six empty seats and people on the women's side are just about out of room because you ignored the empty seats and sat in the back. So I'd like to pull six people forward. Fill in the first front seats first, please. Otherwise, Stacy, you're going to come sit in front. Sorry, Alice is going to sit in front. Who else can I embarrass? Connie, come sit in front. KYC, please come sit in front. Okay, there are empty seats, and the women's side is full all the way to the back now. And after this, there won't be any room in the back. Which is a good thing, mind you, but embarrassing if the empty front and full back. Also selfish. There's a Vietnamese translation in the uh, upstairs in the balcony if anybody would like to sit uh, and hear a Vietnamese translation courtesy of our volunteer translating staff. Thank you very much. And also, guys, notice that uh, we got a bunch of empty seats in the front too. So Now, will the men's side be full by the time the sutra lecture is over? We'll see. Maybe so. Anyway, I have been uh, traveling and been out to uh, four different countries and five if you include Taiwan and uh, really missed not being here on Saturday nights to be able to touch the sutra and to look into its mirror. So let's do that now. I'd like you to turn please to page 28 and 29. Welcome to the folks who are joining us online from wherever you might be. I was told that um, the PDF of our text online is already um, up, that we need to renew our PDF. So apologies to people who are unable to follow the text tonight. We will get that up to speed so you you can download it and follow along. Now, while I was away, there were uh, many uh, monks, nuns, and lay people who volunteered to lecture appreciate that uh, stepping in to do that and I'm sure I heard the lectures were really really fine and uh, I'm happy to come back and do my part so we're on the bottom paragraph the bottom of the page 28 and 29 and it's the last paragraph and it says we'll start right there Uh, we're going to go over to We'll, we'll take a big bite and go all the way over to the top of 31. Okay. Ready? Yu Zhu Fo So. Yi Zun Zhong Xin. Fu Gang Xiu Xin. Shi Shan Dao Fa. Sui Qi So Shao. Nai Zhi Pu Ti. Zhong Bu Wang Shi. 是菩萨与无量白千亿哪有他劫破戒垢故 Okay, we'll stop right there. In the presence of all Buddhas, with a reverent mind, 
he further receives and practices the dharmas of the ten wholesome paths. He follows with what he has received, even up to Bodhi, and never forgets or loses it. Because this Bodhisattva, through limitless hundreds of thousands of millions, of Nayutas of Kalpas leaves far behind the defilement of stinginess jealousy and broken precepts he purifies giving and holding precepts to perfection okay that's it um, we're, this breaks into two pieces so. the um, we're talking about a bodhisattva, an awakened being, who is on the second of ten grounds, stages. This is like a um, someone going through levels of high school or university, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. But there are ten levels, and this bodhisattva is on the second one. We've come to the end of the description of what he or she is like. And that's what this is doing, is giving us a picture of what... What a bodhisattva is like. What does he do? What does he say? What does he think? And uh, change the pronoun because this is not. This is very gender inclusive. So um, it says, in the presence of all Buddhas, because we found out that um, the last time we lectured that the bodhisattva, um, because of his skill, I'll just use he instead of going back and forth. But anybody who wants to substitute she, it, it works just the same. Um, he, is, he, he is developed in his skill in cultivation, practice of, of the Dharma, his spiritual practices, his prayer life in the Christian context, is so uh, refined and strong now that this Bodhisattva sees Buddhas. The Buddhas actually appear. It's not images like these or it's not imagination. The Buddhas actually appear. And then, what we heard last time was, the Bodhisattva starts to relate to them. He starts to interact with them. How does he do it? He gives. Bodhisattva practices giving. He takes uh, natural things, like these flowers, or like the incense you can smell, or the lights, or the the food, or things from nature that are fine and pure, and he gives them to the Buddhas, including robes. It specifies robes and medicines and bedding and the four kinds of offerings. Robes, clothes, that is to say, clothes, food and drink, bedding and medicine. Four things that if you don't have them, you suffer. Those are kind of the basics for survival is food and drink, clothes, bedding and medicine. The Bodhisattva makes those offerings to the Buddhas and then in the presence of those Buddhas, having had this relationship with them, um, he, this is what we pick up tonight, says, Yi Zun Zhong Xin, the Bodhisattva uses an attitude, a Xin, a mind. The Bodhisattva's heart experiences this feeling of reverence. He's looking at the Buddhas and he's probably staring, probably can't stop staring. He's going, wow, this... I could look like that. 
um, Buddhas are perfected humans. And I think, I had, this is theoretical on my part, but I think when you see a Buddha, you probably see what you could become. The Buddha probably is just like a mirror, and it reflects your potential perfection. At the same time, um, it doesn't hide the imperfections. It, it's not a fantasy. It's not a, a Photoshop job. It's actually your nature showing up. The Buddha has erased all traces of ego. The Buddha is not a person anymore. Uh, he's, that's what makes the difference between before Buddhahood and now a Buddha, is the self has been transformed. So you're looking at a perfected human without limits, without limitations of personality or gender or race or prejudice or bias or doctrine or dogma. It's just this limitless human potential for wisdom and compassion right there in front of you. And so what it does, that mirror reflects you back. You see your best. Um, and the same experience is happening with the person next to you and the person behind you and the humans, non-humans, and the rest, they say. So it must be quite a, quite a moment to be in front of the Buddha. And the Bodhisattva feels in uh, deep tsun chong, an attitude of reverence. It's like, this is something I could do too. Fu gong shou xing. Further, again, it says, once, one more time, the Bodhisattva picks up the practices. And it specifies that because um, in this sutra, the sutra is about Bodhisattvas. And if you had to name two things that it's about, along with the Bodhisattvas, it would be Bodhisattvas' vows, V-O-W, vows, the vows they make, and two, their practices, the things they do in order to realize those vows. That's what the sutra is about over and over and over and over. It talks about this. And a vow is, that, that word comes up all the time in our sutra. I'm going to sneeze, but not into the microphone. Watch. So the um, what a vow is is it's a wish of the heart that you put your heart into. You you mean it. It's a wish. Think of New Year's resolutions that just somehow seem to fade. It's hard to keep a New Year's resolution past February. But uh, the vow of a bodhisattva is wholehearted. It's fully committed. And uh, the sutra gives many hundreds and thousands of examples of what bodhisattva's vows are like. There's a chapter called the Ten Transferences that I lecture on um, on Sunday nights in City of Ten Thousand Buddhas. And that sutra, that chapter of that sutra is nothing but bodhisattva's vows, one after the other, after the other, after the other. It's very profound. For example, the bodhisattva says, um, may all living beings... Uh, lose their fear and 
the language would be something like dwell forever in the light of selfless confidence. And there's a vow, you know. And the Bodhisattva backs it up by taking all of the goodness that he would get from his practices and giving it to, to living beings with a wish then. So he puts a rider on top of his gift. I want to give all my good stuff away and in doing so, I send it off with the wish that. So it's a prayer, right? So a vow and a prayer are not the same, but the function in the mind. It's, it's a movement of the mind. Prayers, if you look at, uh, for example, the Psalms in the Old Testament. Some of you have. I know you have. You can admit it. That's all right. Nobody's noticed it. In Psalms, Psalms is this wonderful uh, collection of the songs of King David and other things, but by and large it's, it's him. And in the Psalms, there are supplications. He, in many of the Psalms, uh, the, the psalmist, the person who's singing, uh, is, is saying, Lord, I am broken. Heal me. Lord, I am weak. Give me strength. Um, supplication is saying, I need. And the direction is this way. That's a lot of the, a lot, a lot of the Psalms for that. And they're, those are perfectly fine. That's for uh, someone who is connected to a spirit or a deity, a god. Um, there's very much a sense of uh, understanding that the God is more powerful and uh, the, he's the creator and me as creature needs his strength, his support in order to get through. So it's a moving of the heart out to something pure and holy. Well, a Bodhisattva's transference vow is just that too. It's a movement of the heart out with a wish but the function, instead of saying, I need, is I have and I give. I want to share. Now, mind you, not all the psalms, that's, it would be inaccurate to say that the psalms are all requests, uh, supplication. So many are. But I just illustrated that way so that you can get a sense of what a bodhisattva's vow might be. A bodhisattva says, um, I have been, um, for example, for example, um, I've been trying to be mindful of food. So I decided to eat one meal less per day. For example, not suggesting it, mind you. Um, I've decided that um, in breakfast and lunch, I get all the nutrition that my body needs and I'm really aware that food is going to be the number one environmental issue for the next couple of decades, food and water. So I'm going to eat just enough and reduce the dinner meal to um, the leftovers from lunch. I'm not going here, to, here would be a bodhisattva's vow, I'm not going to turn the stove on afternoon. How's that? Bodhisattva says, I'm not going to cook afternoon. So any evening meal is going to be 
the leftovers. You can nuke them if you want. That's not the point. The point is you're not going to get out the chocolate board and, and uh, you know, start a meal at night. There's a lot. So you reduce your, income, your intake of nutrition after the evening, which, mind you, the Bodhisattva probably would have researched and discovered that digestive fire, which in Ayurvedic medicine is called Agni, right? The stuff that digests your food is strongest at midday and is weak at night. And often food that you take in after sunset is in your stomach the next morning, right? Because it didn't get digested at night. And the Bodhisattva has an active meditation life now and has discovered that when he or she meditates in the morning with an empty stomach, you know, up at five o'clock or six o'clock and is sitting there, meditation is very quiet. Why? Because it's not going gurgle, 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 gurgle. That energy, that focus is somewhere else in your system. It's calm and still. So you go, hey, this practice is okay. The Bodhisattva is, you know, making, what it's doing is integrating spiritual practice with daily living habits. That's when it gets really interesting. It goes beyond the notion of um, waiting for grace. It goes beyond the notion of um, creature versus creator, which, mind you, is a good way to this way that works for most people. But if you want to get more involved and put your practices, as it says here, show xing, if you want to receive and practice the teachings that you've heard, then that's a really good way to do it. Start with something like close food and sleep. And so the Bodhisattva does that, experiences changes and says, ha, okay, says, all of the goodness that comes to me from having integrated my understanding of spirituality with my life, I give to living beings, or I give to grandma, or I give to all the people who I've ever harmed in my life so I can heal the negativity. Wherever you want to give it, I give it away with the wish that, and you make the vow. You add that spiritual rider on top of your gift. So how nice, right? You're putting body, mouth, and mind into action to benefit. And it feels like a really committed, wholesome, tax-free, low environmental impact, satisfying commitment to your spiritual life. You're turning a wheel. It feels like good karma. That's what we say in English. It feels like good karma, right? Because you're going, yeah, I actually did change. I'm eating less these days, and I, you know, I feel much better, and my meditation's picked up, and I'm kind of paying attention to the food that I eat in those first two meals, because I notice that if I eat and talk, a lot of the nutrition seems to just kind of vanish. Whereas if I focus and I'm grateful while I eat, 
it feels like the food is warm somehow, and it feels, you know. So you just kind of, everything starts to integrate, and you realize that it's from that wish to benefit via practices and vows. So that's what bodhisattvas do. That's the, the kind of the, the theme, if you had to have one, of the Avatamsaka Sutra, is a bodhisattva's mind as they, she, he, uh, puts the Dharma into their lives, and the actual methods, how they do it. What's the methodology? Okay, got it? So, in the presence of all the Buddhas, with a reverent mind, the Bodhisattva receives and practices the Dharmas of Shishandalfa. Literally, ten good path, or Tao, that's the Tao of Taoism, ten good path methods. Ten Good Paths is the name of uh, the, um, the topic of our second ground. It's been the ten good deeds, the ten unskillful or evil deeds. The ten wholesome deeds, the ten unwholesome deeds. The Bodhisattva is now cultivating the ten, the methods of the ten good paths. What are they? Again, extremely practical extremely pragmatic, really, really down-to-earth, has to do with three good deeds done with the body, three good deeds done with the mind, four good deeds done with the mouth, and avoiding the evil, unskillful opposites of those. The three good deeds done with the body are avoiding killing, avoiding stealing, Avoiding sexual misconduct, which defines as adultery if you're married, or promiscuity and harmful sexuality if you're not married. That's the three with the body, so killing, stealing, and lust. The three with the mind are avoiding greed, avoiding anger, rage, hatred, and avoiding what are called alternately delusion or wrong views. Basically, the the basic description of what a wrong view is is disbelieving in cause and effect, assuming that cause and effect is not working and that you can get away with things that your conscience tells you you shouldn't have done. That's disbelief in cause and effect is called wrong view. So those are the three with the mind. The four with the mouth are... Avoiding lying, avoiding what's called double-tongue speech, in other words, backbiting or duplicity or gossip. That's the second one. The third is harsh speech, so avoiding profanity, cleaning up your mouth. And fourth is avoiding frivolous speech or dirty jokes or prattle, just constantly running off all the time the mouth. So... Killing, stealing, lust, greed, anger, delusion, lying, double-tongue, speech, harsh speech, frivolous speech. Those are the ten. Bodhisattva avoids those and creates the ten wholesome, skillful deeds. Why? Is the Buddha just a stuffy old moralist? Is like the Buddha some sort of do-good Lutheran pastor who just makes you feel guilty but you wonder if he's a hypocrite on Sunday morning kind of thing? Not. Why? What's the difference? Why is he not? 
it's because the Buddha gives us these completely in the context of meditation. That is to say, the Buddha is a person who practiced these methods to success. And then, instead of simply going off to nirvana and enjoying the fruits of his hard work, he came back and said, you too can end suffering. Here's how you do it, and here's what you need to avoid if you want to get there. These are pitfalls. These are boulders on the road. These are uh, rock slides on the highway. So avoid these things, and you will succeed. It's completely practical. This is, these are, this is a morality um, that comes without a wagging finger and comes without judgment. It's not that the Buddha will like me more if I avoid killing or if, if I don't kill. It's that if I kill and then want to make progress in my spiritual practice, it's going to go a certain distance and then stop. Your mind will not be in one piece if you kill. So um, that's the difference. It's not goody two-shoes. It's please avoid these and you'll make it. You will do what I did. This is what you need to know. It's a roadmap. That's what these are. So it took me years and years and years after becoming a monk to recognize that this morality was not punitive. It wasn't there to limit my freedom. It was completely given as practical methodology for success in meditation. So that was a big difference. All right. Uh, further, then it says what? He follows what he has received even up to Bodhi. It says, Saichi so show Niger Puti. The Bodhisattva means he, he continues it, he doesn't just do it on the weekends. The Bodhisattva puts these things into practice regularly, every day, just the way he dresses and eats. And he, this, they don't change all the way to Buddhahood. There is a school uh, of thinking that was popular back in the 70s and 80s called Crazy Wisdom. And it was advocated by... Uh, particularly Chogyam Trungpa, among others, and Naropa around that. And um, I don't mind naming him because I really want to discredit the, one of the tenets of this school. The, the thinking was, if you're a bodhisattva, you don't follow the rules anymore. You don't have to. You're free of the rules. You can do what you want. Uh, and of course, what you want is the things that you've been precepting all along. There was a thinking that a bodhisattva is, can misbehave because they're already enlightened. Um, this line of the text says, the bodhisattva suichi so sho najiputi continues with these practices all the way to awakening. If you... The, the crazy wisdom idea was that certain individuals are qualified now to kill, steal, lust, lie, and hurt people, to be selfish, and to not follow rules. That was prevalent for a while. And 
I remember um, my first experience with Chogyam Trungpa was as a graduate student at Cal, 1972. And we heard there was this fabulous Lama coming to, to San Francisco. And it was our first encounter with a teaching Tibetan Lama. Because there were, Tarthan Tulku was here and Kunga Lama was here, but uh, the Shambhala community hadn't, hadn't arrived yet. So sitting uh, in this auditorium over in San Francisco and seeing this guy come on stage wearing a three-piece suit, limping on stage. And uh, first thing he does is he sits down and he goes, uncorks a beer. And he's got a Pilsner glass and he goes, lets the foam go up, sets it down. Then, lights up a viceroy. And, and gets ready to speak Dharma. And I didn't know anything about the Buddhist precepts. I, I was two years from having met Master Shrenhua at that point. And he, uh, a woman sitting two rows ahead of me, said, Excuse me. Excuse me, I understood that the Buddhists, especially teachers, didn't use alcohol and cigarettes. Why are you doing that? And the answer came, I'm doing it because I like it. What's wrong with you? Was the answer. And half the audience went, Yay! Liberated! Half the audience went, that doesn't sound right. And it, I came back deeply troubled because here's the famous Chogyam Trungpa who was smoking and drinking on stage. And the answer was crazy wisdom. Bodhisattvas don't have to do what everybody else does because they're already, we know, we're, they're all, you know, they're already, you know. What? What are No, we don't. What are they? So the sutra says, Bodhisattvas don't get intoxicated because obviously intoxication clouds wisdom. Think about the last time you drank a beer. For me, I, I have lots of water in my horoscope and, and beers, my chemistry was affected for t- two or three days. I could tell the effect of alcohol in my system for two and three days back when I drank and cigarettes are harmful to self and others. So how does a bodhisattva at some point start indulging in selfish, harmful practices, harming self and others? It's like, that's not going to get you closer to bodhi. And it's certainly not going to cross over living being. So here's the sutra saying, uh-uh. Actually, the practices of awakening are there because they take you beyond self because they are harmless practices precisely because of that. And it's not at a certain point the Bodhisattva goes back to being ignorant and harmful, selfish and, and uh, careless. You know, it's not. That's, that doesn't make sense. So crazy wisdom school bit by bit has been pretty much, pretty much retired, I think. It died out as people woke up. Um, Robert Aitken the, the uh, 
the Zen teacher from the Diamond Sangha in Hawaii, writes about the same dynamic in a book called Mind of Clover. It's a wonderful book. And he, he was one of the very first wave of Zen people who met Zen. And he uh, writes that in their house in Hawaii, where the Diamond Sangha began, um, there was the first encounter with meditation. And their school followed a Japanese system that went directly to samadhi, having skipped over the first step of, of precepts, of, of the ethical side. And he said, uh, we would all meditate and then get up and, and go on our way living as a commune. And this was in the 60s. And communal life in the 60s was, if it feels good, do it. You know, that was the ethos. And he said everybody was, was partner swapping and bed hopping and uh, free love and uh, relationships without boundaries was, was the ethos. That was the way the culture was moving at that point. He said uh, that we, uh, it, it sustained itself for about three months and then it, the effect hit our meditation hall. The effect of this hit the zendo. And the result was chaos. Nobody could meditate. He said, we were so busy struggling with our partners and our relationships and our hurt feelings and our jealousies and our angers that he said it just, it, uh, the zendo became uh, a 24-hour uh, encounter session. People just recriminating each other and shouting. And he, he knew, he said, something was missing. This is not the way he'd ever read meditation halls were supposed to go. And at that point, Aitken writes, he went back and researched what the Buddha actually taught about meditation and discovered that in Japan, in the Zen world, they had, after the Meiji emperor returned all the monks back to lay life and burned the temples and melted the images so he could have soldiers, gold, and land back. The, in Japan, they forgot about the precepts. And in fact, uh, in America, Americans were really interested in meditation. They were meditating hard. In Japan, the meditation, with a few exceptions, had also vanished because the precepts were gone. So he said, here were the Americans working hard at their meditation, but then missing the formation, the foundation of character. Once he said, once I learned that there was an ethical code that was the foundation of meditation, he said, thankfully, thank goodness, we put that into place. We gave, we, we met together and said, enough playing around, here's what the Buddha taught the basic precepts. He said, we put those into practice. We all agreed. We signed a code of conduct. He said, the meditation hall, the zendo, was calm, serene, and felt right. He said, that was the actual beginning of, of our uh, practice at the Diamond Sangha. So, uh, Spirit Rock and the Inside Meditation community has a code of conduct for teachers and students that has been in place uh, from the beginning 
because the founders learned their meditation from Ajahn Chah, who is straight and traditional and solid, Shila, Samadhi, Prajna, character, concentration, insight. So they are surviving, and they've been through a couple generations now. So anyway, so just to say, here's the textual, the scriptural proof of the the uh, foolishness of crazy wisdom. Bodhisattvas follow the rules better than they did when they began because they've been doing it longer and they don't change. It says he follows what he has received even up to Bodhi. He never forgets or loses it. Because this Bodhisattva throughout limitless hundreds of thousands of millions of nayutas of kalpas, this is a long period of time. A kalpa is an eon. A nayuta is an uncountable number. So, because this bodhisattva throughout limitless eons of time leaves far behind the defilement of stinginess, jealousy, and broken precepts, he purifies giving and holding precepts to perfection. People might recall that um, last time we lectured on this, the, uh, we talked about a kind of a refrain, like a, uh, a chorus that comes back throughout all the ten... Grounds, and this is one of those. There, um, with each ground, the bodhisattva takes another step into the um, his mind or her mind. Notice what it mentions: stinginess, jealousy, and broken precepts. Instead, the bodhisattva purifies giving and holding precepts. What is this? These are the paramitas. Paramita is a Sanskrit word that means perfection, and it also means uh, to cross over, crossing over, ways to go across. Crossover means from samsara and all of the misery of coming back into a body that gets old and sick and dies and being reborn. That's samsara. You cross over from there to nirvana, where that cycle ends. How do you do it? There are ten specific practices, ten paramitas, ten ways across. And the ten grounds corresponds, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, to the paramitas. Uh, it's kind of a sub-theme. So the structure of this text is, is visible in this refrain that comes up every time, but a little different, progressing forward. The first two of the paramitas are giving, dana paramita, and precepts, shila, paramita, the perfection of giving, charity, generosity. And the second one is the perfection of ethics, character, how, how we are as people. The bodhisattva, the skillful cultivator, uses the paramitas to cross over bad habits that he sees, she sees in her character. And as those get purified, as they get, as we lose those habits, the bodhisattva can use those paramitas on other people too. First paramita is giving, crosses over stinginess, inability to share, holding on, being tight, stingy. The bodhisattva, instead, he says, that's not going to lose myself. There's a big self involved in me and mine. So he gives it away with 
generosity, with charity. Dana paramita, the perfection of giving. Further, the bodhisattva, through all that time, leaves behind the defilement of broken precepts. So he, she, um, holds the precepts to perfection. Shila, paramita, the perfection of morality. According to the Buddha's description of how to follow guidelines to lose the self, to transform the self. Okay? Got that? That's a, that's a big piece in there. The perfections, the paramitas, are tools that a bodhisattva uses to transform his, her nature. And they're specific. The, the, the things in the nature that the bodhisattva wants to transform are stinginess, immoral or unskillful behavior, anger, laxness, not being vigorous, scatteredness, scattered mind, and ignorance. So to cross over those six problems in his nature, her nature, he uses giving, morality, patience, vigor, concentration, and wisdom. Those are the six paramitas. And in this text, they expand them to ten. Usually there are six, so the six perfections, the six paramitas. So that's the list. Giving, precepts, those are the two that are mentioned here. Patience and vigor, or strength, is often a translation of vigor. Then samadhi, that is to say concentration and wisdom. The six paramitas. That's one of our Buddhist lists, and it's the list that bodhisattvas are connected with. In the Theravada world, they talk about barami, B-A-R-A-M-I. That's a Pali rendering of paramita. It's not the same thing, interestingly. It's the, the Pali barami basically means good qualities. The Sanskrit paramitas is very specific tools that a bodhisattva used. Is that a lot? Does that kind of... Sounds like technical? It is. It's technical. And... The, uh, the paramitas are a lifetime study. And so I just kind of ran... That, that was the crawler on the bottom of the CNN screen, right? Six paramitas, giving precepts, concentrating. And I was like, what was that? I saw something go by. That seemed like a... Was that important? Would you run that? Oh, can't do it. Let's look online, see if we can stop it. Hit the pause. So those, the paramitas are really, really... Uh, rich and deep. So here in our refrain, it says the Bodhisattva has now started to work on the Paramitas. This is number two out of ten grounds. And it says the Bodhisattva is getting really good at holding the Paramitas. What is he like? He is like, okay, here's where we got uh, Pusa 
于无量百千亿，哪有他劫？原理千机破戒垢故，不失持戒，清净满足。He's like true gold, which in an alloy, not alley, alloy stone, can be smelted in accordance with a method until it's free of all impurities and becomes bright and pure. The bodhisattva who dwells, not swells. Dwells upon this ground, leaving behind defilement. Also, in that way, throughout limitless hundreds of thousands and millions of nayutas or kalpas, leaves far behind the defilement of stinginess, jealousy, and breaking precepts, and purifies giving and holding precepts to perfection. Questions? Connie's trying to decide whether to ask. I'll pass. Okay. Any questions about? Here's the analogy. This is the second time we've run into this analogy about goldsmithing. One of my professors, Raoul Bernbaum, put himself through Colombia by jewelry making, being a goldsmith, and this is in New York City, where the.、Uh, That trade is—it's a guild that might as well have come out of the 15th century. It's absolutely、um, in the hands of skillful individuals who may or may not pass it on to you, the punk novice. And he、uh, once I asked Raoul for the inside story about about being a jewelry maker, and he. He laughed and and said, "I, you know, there's there's so much to tell you, and it's just it's so intense.、Uh, little old Jewish men, mostly, who sit hunched over their bench for hours, weeks, months, and years." And he said, "They are they got it. They they are so skillful at what they do that they look at gold." And know exactly what what its ultimate purity will be, how much will be yielded from a little bit after they smelt it, how much will go away, and、uh, what they're they're thinking about what could be made. And he says you、uh, you you spend years and years and years making rings, and years and years and years making settings. No creativity. You just do it, and you do it, and do it until you can. You do it in your sleep, and then you might get a chance to make something on your own, make something creative, something beautiful. But it, he said, it's it does not come easily. And to go from there's a whole bunch of journeymen from novice to journeyman, but to go from journeyman to master, very few, very few. And the price that you pay to go from journeyman to master is, you you get bad posture. He said you just you're in there just you know like that for years and years, and you give up your life to gold. And there's also there's I mean this I I could have listened to these stories forever.、Um, the、um, there is something about gold. There's definitely something magical about gold that affects people.
Maybe you know. Maybe you're one of those people. I don't know. Um, I'm not particularly. I've I've seen gold, and I kind of get it, but I don't really get it. There, the people who get it can look at gold, and their eyes turn red. Their eyes go. They crave gold. Gold can incite craving in people. Think of Shakespeare. You know, gold is a synonym for everything that inspires avarice, greed, craving. Right? You can lust gold to the point where you kill for it, and uh, it doesn't take much. You know, just little bits of gold. If if it's pure, it, it's enough to. Because why? It's a fundamental. Metal. It's a metal, right? Not an element, it's a metal. And uh, there's only so much of it. You know, think of the gold rush. What about the gold rush? People left their homes in Fujian and Guangzhou and came all the way across the ocean just to go out in the, the streams, in the Sierras, and risk everything in order to pull out of the soil these little flecks of the yellow metal and it will get you. Gold will hook your soul. Some people get hooked. They get addicted to just just being in the presence of that yellow metal. People know what I'm talking about? Is this silly? It's not. It's, there's, you know. Um, And you think about all of the all of the living that happens around gold, such as wedding rings, right? That that band. What is all of the feelings and vows, marriage vows, till death do us part? You know, the bodies die, the ring stays, right? These and you think about grandmother's necklace, grandmother's locket grandmother's chain right my dad had a watch uh, oh I have a story to tell you by the way we're, we're going to stop at nine o'clock so I can show some photographs of the trip to Europe and Jason um, our official photographer Jason Gong also uh, has way too many photos just <laughs> we both are we have thousands of photographs and we're trying to narrow it down to a few that we can show and share. Anyway, um, one of the things that I did um, is, has to do with gold. I didn't think of that when I started this monologue. But um, I'll, I'll tell that story now. My dad um, had his wedding ring and he also had a star sapphire that he brought back from a trip somewhere. And he had his watch. And when my dad passed on in 1969, um, there were, you know, his personal effects. And my older brother, Steve, and I um, had, you know, there were my dad's golf clubs, which were really, really nice custom golf clubs. And I was not going to play golf, and he was, and so Steve got the golf clubs. 
And uh, there was uh, the ukulele, and I got the ukulele. And uh, my dad had a watch, and it was a special uh, Le Coultre watch from France, and he'd had it for years. And it was a um, it was one of the earliest self winding watches, and it had this little pendulum in you, and it was hand fashioned gold. The the body of the watch was gold, and I remember. Uh, my brother and I uh, sent it back and forth once or twice because uh, he, I, I think Steve actually, he wanted the, the keepsake for a dad, but he didn't want the watch. And I wanted the watch. Um, so I got the watch. But then when I left home, um, it was like, this is a nice watch. Monks shouldn't wear a watch like that because it's, it's a gold watch and it's got, it's a classy watch. It's a, you know, French watch from the 1950s. So uh, I was, I kind of, I kept it with me, but I didn't wear it. And, and it was my dad's, you know, because he had it on his, his wrist for years. And so um, I went to, this time, fast forward, three weeks ago, two weeks ago, we went to Amravati, in England. You'll see pictures of it in a minute. And Amravati is uh, Ajahn Sumedho's big monastery in England. It's uh, a large monastery. It's their equivalent of a city of 10,000 Buddhas. And I, this was my third trip to Amravati. My second trip to Amravati, I was invited there because they were, they built a brand new Buddha hall. And it was beautiful, done in Thai style by Western architects. So it's definitely a blend of East and West. Fabulous uh, English craftsmanship, English materials, but distinctly Asian influence architecture. Beautiful. And when the Thais, when the Thai Buddhists dedicate a new Buddha hall, they have this custom the last stone is right in the center in front of the Buddhas. And they, there's a whole ceremony for rolling this round stone down a ramp and you chant. And before you roll the stone down to indicate completion of the building, you put valuable things in the hole. And I was there, this was 1980... Do you remember when it was, Jason? I forget. Connie, did you remember the date? Did you hear it? No. Anybody remember when Amravati... He, he, Ajahn Amaral told us, I forget. Maybe 1990, 1994 or something like that. So, uh, Ajahn Sumedho was there and the the... Sister of the king of Thailand was there. The, the crown princess was there. And uh, there were, you know, thousands of onlookers and a hundred monks. And in order to do it right, um, Ajahn Sumedho invited everybody to contribute things that would be in the hole to dedicate 
the monastery. One of his disciples in England was a jeweler and had kept all of the diamond chips that he had chipped off over the years of cutting stones and all of the extra silver and, and uh, his stash of precious things. And he had 50 pounds of precious stones. And they brought it in with, on, on, a, on two guys holding a, you know, a, a heavy pole to, to bring it in. And this, this, you know, like a Brinks truck kind of security thing. And they unscrewed the top and four guys, four monks actually, upended it. And we saw these emeralds and rubies and diamonds and sapphires just going down, industrial diamonds going down in the hole. Millions of dollars of goodies, you know, precious things were going down the hole. People were chucking in their wedding rings and maybe not their wedding rings, their grandmother's wedding rings. No, 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 not their wedding Their grandmother's wedding rings. Maybe the monks were chipping in their wedding rings. So, uh, that didn't come out right, did it? Valuable stuff was going in the hole and, uh, you know, uh, Civil War dollar, you know, dollar pieces and things that uh, people had treasured because they wanted to make an offering to the Buddha. And I was watching this happen and I was thinking, you know what? I don't get many chances to actually cross over my dad. And wouldn't it be nice, because he came to England in the Second World War, it was the biggest event of his life. Here's the watch. So my dad's gold watch went into the hole. And, uh, and then this ball is this rolls down, closes it, and they cement it over and then, then tile it, and it's there. It's the idea is in perpetuity you know, as an offering to the Buddha, the last stone of the new temple. And I had done that, you know, uh, 20-some years earlier, 90, 15 years earlier. And so three weeks ago, I visited it again. And there was the spot. And our community was there, and I got to tell the story of my dad's watch was in the hole. So... It was a gold watch, and I remember looking at that gold and thinking, so this is gold. Hmm, yeah, it's gold. Gold is, it's warm, it's soft. Gold is not hard, it's soft, relatively, you know, given metals. And uh, it takes on qualities. It, there's a feeling that, you know, gold doubloons, ha 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 ha, me hearties, you know. Pirate John, Long John Silver with his gold, you know. So that's gold. And it says here the Bodhisattva is like 24 karat gold, which, when in the alloy, when it's still surrounding, since still in the stone around it, you can smelt it in accordance with the method, Rufa. Lian Yi, do it with a method till it's free of impurities and becomes bright and pure. You just keep chucking the gold back into the fire and you bring it out and you hammer it, put it in the fire and it melts and you hammer it and the gold being a real metal doesn't go away, the impurities go away. It's smelting gold, it's a process and 
Raoul will tell you how that works, what, what you actually do. And, of course, you have to do it right, otherwise you can lose some of the gold. But if you do it correctly, only the dross, only the impurities go away. And it says, it leaves, it gets, it, you leave the defilements and it becomes bright and pure. The bodhisattva on the second ground is the same way. This is an analogy. The bodhisattva is just like the gold, which is to say, through limitless hundreds of thousands and millions of nayutas of eons, he leaves far behind the defilements of stinginess, jealousy, and broken precepts. And in exchange, purifies giving and holding precepts to perfection, paramita. Okay, so that analogy pops up in every ground as the bodhisattva progressively cultivates. Right? Questions, comments? Anybody know somebody who has gold fever? Mm -hmm. It'll get you. I see. I, I can't hear, I'm sorry. deep how, how far in does it go to here okay and that, that's big huh? uh-huh. can you translate for yourself There's a 48-meter-tall Buddha image being built at Donglin Monastery in Jiangxi province near Lushan. And they, there's a custom there, apparently, is to fill up the, the Buddha image, the head of the Buddha image. 
So the back of the head is, they've got a, a door or something, and you can fill up the head with valuables. And, and people were encouraged to bring their, their jewelry. And somebody decided at some point, instead of filling it up with, you know, necklaces and, and bracelets, they decided to melt them down, sell the material, or sell it. Johan Jintian, huh? Mm-hmm. So if you sell the jewelry and to to try to um to exchange with pure gold, that's why probably more valuable. Oh, so the idea is to sell the jewelry and exchange it for pure gold, which then they put in the in the Buddha. So, say. Pasano carried all the jewels that came from all over the country and the jewelry back to Thailand to melt it to put into the new Buddha image. Yeah, that's one of those stories. Good grief. And there, I guarantee there are people when they hear that, that violates something inside. It's like, why did they do that? I mean, all that jewelry. You know? And yeah, it's fascinating. You know, I think send it back into the element and Start over. Yeah, that's fabulous. The uh, roots of faith in Asia and in the West are very uh, almost parallel. Uh, they're yin and yang. They're they're complementary. They're almost opposing. Different different practices. But sometimes it seems that there's a there is a moment when when they converge. We'll, we'll talk about that more. That's just a random thought. Um, can we move one more paragraph down? Because uh, I want I want to um, make more I want to make more progress through our text. And this this next paragraph has got some fabulous dharmas in it. It's the second paragraph on page thirty. Shi 
，于非不行，但随力随分，随分。Disciples of the Buddha, among the four dharmas of attraction, this bodhisattva stresses kind words. Among the ten paramitas, he stresses holding precepts. It's not that he fails to practice the others, but he only does so according to his power and proportionately. Okay, here's another refrain sentence. This is a a, a repeating passage. And what are the four dharmas of attraction? There's Uh, this is one of the Buddhist lists that is. Uh, uh, this is a contemplation for a lifetime. Uh, the the Bodhisattva stresses kind words among the four dharmas of attraction. There are said to be four ways to gather people in, and four ways to bring people to the Dharma uh, that are most effective. And of those four, there are there's giving, this one giving things to people makes a good tie. People are happy when you give them something. So if you want to bring people close to get them, let them hear the Dharma or or uh, get the benefit of spiritual practice, you give them something. The second is kind words, gentle speech. The third is called co- collaboration or cooperation, working together with people.、Um, just get involved in things that people are doing, help them out. And the fourth one is called things that benefit. You you help people. So it's bu shi ai yu. Those are the four things: giving, friendly speech, gentle speech, collaboration, or cooperation, working with people, and the fourth one is things to benefit, help people. So, if you want to make a wholesome tie with somebody, if you want to get somebody on your side. Give to them, speak kindly, work with them, and help them. Help them out. These are called the four dharmas of attraction, and the bodhisattva is already on number two. Kind speech, gentle speech, I, you, literally loving words, and among the ten paramitas. Notice there's ten, not six. He stresses, she stresses the second one, holding precepts, and it specifies. It says it's not that they ignore the other. Three dharmas of attraction, or nine paramitas, but they do so according to their strength and according to what's needed, what's what's appropriate. Okay, there we go. We're、um, just about next week. We're going to talk about、uh, universal monarchs. We're going to talk about. The seven jewels. We're going to talk about the analogy of、um, mindfulness, and then we get some powerful words about leaving home. What does it mean to leave home? Here, and at that point, we're into the verses, and the verses you'll see take. 
uh, pages. Every one of the ten grounds concludes with summary verses. It, re- it repeats the dharmas that we heard, only doing it in verse form. And sometimes the verses say it in a way that we hear it brand new. Sometimes we hear it better in a verse than we did in the prose. Okay. Let's uh, transfer the merit now and we'll give the announcements and then do the slides. And for people who are really not into slideshows, don't feel at all compelled to to watch Uncle Fred's movies of the trip to Niagara Falls. You know. And there, there I am again. That's Dorothy looking right there, and the, that's you can't see her because she's got her hat on and the dark glasses. But that's Dorothy. Yeah. Uh, don't feel you have to stick around. So we'll transfer the merit and then give announcements and set up the projector. So the dedication of merit is there in your sutra text, and. By golly, do we have something to transfer merit to tonight? The um, who would have thought that Norway would be on our radar? Um, Norway is there. I read a, a essay about a man a front written by. A man who just came back from Norway, he was there on some uh, Nobel Prize work, and he was commenting about what an incredibly peaceful place Norway was. He was in a bar, uh, he was in a a cafe, and a woman sitting at the counter uh, had to run outside and do something, and she left her laptop running, her car keys, and her purse all on the countertop. And he said, doesn't she want to take her wallet and her car key? They said, no, this is Norway. He'll all be there when she's back. Nobody steals. People don't steal. They don't lock their doors. They, they leave their cars running. You know. So it's that kind of a place. And this fellow, who it turns out wrote a 1,500-page essay about the evils of multiculturalism, um, that is to say, he believes that if you don't look like him, you don't deserve to live. Right? And that's a profoundly ignorant, small perspective. And it motivated him enough, you know, that he, if you, if you, think differently than I do, if you look differently than I do, you die. I would definitely have died. I would have been a target on that island because I don't look like an Aryan Viking type. And boy, oh boy, all the people around the world who, when the first words came about a bomb, said, Muslim terrorist, ate their words. Shame on us. The guy's anti-Muslim. Exactly the opposite. 
he's a fundamentalist Christian who thinks turning a gun on children, making just shooting children like you'd shoot varmints, uh, living, you know, someone's daughter, someone's son, that killing them is pleasing some code, you know. That's a, that's a sick mind, and uh, the world has people in it like that. So we can transfer merit and say, you know, all here's a vow, Bodhisattva's vow, all the goodness that comes from, from uh, spending time together looking in this mirror, this ancient wisdom text. I share with living beings that they expand the measure of their mind to admit the possibility of difference, of other of someone who is not exactly like me. You know, that, that I transfer the merit with the wish that people take joy in the forest having more than one kind of tree, the market having more than one kind of fruit, the restaurant having more than one kind of grain available to eat. You know, just if you just open your eyes, you see that the world is not mono anywhere not monotheistic, not monocultural, monolingual. How could it be? That's a disease. That's an illness of the mind. So I transfer the merit with the wish that all beings be healed from that tragic, sad blindness. So, Okay, so... Um, you can transfer any way you'd like. That's what I'm. That's where my dedication is going to. Because our hearts are one, this world.